Well, as we turn in our Bible today to the last two verses of James chapter 5, our journey through the book of James is coming to a close. And as we look at these verses today, how James closes out his book, it's not the typical way that a New Testament letter ends. In these verses, we don't find uh, James speaking with a parting word of greeting, nor is there a benediction of grace, as we often see in other books. As James writes to this group of believers, those who have been battered, those who have been suffering under severe persecution, it may be that he doesn't want to spend his last few words on pleasantries, but he sees this as an opportunity to give them one last word of instruction on how to walk in the midst of the things they were suffering. Now, as we look at these words, I said that they're not words of grace, a closing benediction, and yet we find words of grace in what James says today. Because in it, as he talks to these weary and wounded believers, he tells them to look around. He says to make sure that they're not leaving anyone behind. Any of those who maybe as they've walked through the minefield of this world that have been wounded or lost their way, he says it is up to us as believers, other brothers and sisters, to come alongside them and help them find the way back. Look with me at James five nineteen through 20, please. He says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, in reading those words, it can be confusing at first glance because we can wonder, are these non-Christians who need to have their souls saved by coming to faith in Jesus Christ for the first time? Or is James speaking to those who are believers who have wandered away from the faith? Now, we'll talk more in a moment as to why it's this second group, those who are already believers. But what I want you to know today is that whether you take it as either group, the, the message is the same. The walk away from today's sermon, the so what am I supposed to do with this message is the same. Because God has given us as Christians a rescue mission. He calls on us to go into the world and to share the good news of his grace, to find those who are far from him, whether they've never come to him in the first place or those who have walked away. And it's up to us through our life, our labors, and the love that we show to call them to come to Christ, to call them to walk with him as we go through this world. Now, as I said, James is speaking to those who are already believers. We, we see that from the way he addresses them. He calls them my brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, if any among you, that is among the believers, strays from the truth. These are those who don't need revive. These are not non-Christians who need redemption. Rather, these are Christians who need revival. When he uses the word sinner, this describes all of us. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so while we are sinners, those who have been redeemed, those who have come to faith, we still struggle with sin. Those that James is talking about here are those that have gone back to uh, their old sin-filled pattern of life. When he says they've strayed or wandered from the truth, he uses the Greek word planeo. And planeo is where we get our English word planet. It, it's a word that means to deceive or lead astray. And it was used to describe the planets in the heavens because as they went through their orbit in the sky, it looked like they were wandering among the other stars that were fixed. And so this is the word that he is using for us. Uh, astronomers and scientists tell us that the earth is in a very narrow orbit. 
When you look at the cosmic uh, galaxy and, and the distance that is out there, they're amazed that, that the earth just happens. They say, just happens to be in this perfect little pathway. Because if the earth were a little closer to the sun, all life would burn up. And if the earth were just a little bit further from the sun, all life would freeze. There would be catastrophic consequences if the earth were to wander out of the orbit that God has designated for it. And so it is with us as Christians. When we wander off the path that God has given to us, there can be catastrophic results and consequences as well. In Matthew chapter 7, in verses 13 through 14, Jesus Christ told us this. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. There are those in the world that tell us, you know, all roads lead to heaven. And yet Jesus Christ told us there is only one way to heaven, which was through him, God's son. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the father but through me. Those that James is writing to here have come to faith in Christ. And what James is warning them about in us today is what happens when we wander off the path. When we get outside of the the path that God has called us to and we try to walk on the one that the world offers us. It's something that James has already talked about in this letter. You recall if you were with us in James chapter 4 that he used a Greek word hedone from which we get our word hedonism. And we saw there in James 4, 1 and 3 that James tells us when we pursue the pleasures of the world, when we're on that wide road of destruction that Jesus Christ described, when we're grabbing all the stuff that the world offers us, we're headed uh, down a road that will leave us empty, damaged, and on a dead-end path of destruction. Another thing that James talked about in chapter 4 as well as in chapter 1 is what happens when we try to walk on two paths at once. You might remember this big fancy word we looked at, dipsychos. It literally means two-souled, and it spoke of the person who was double-minded, how we, we doubt and how we try to walk two roads at once. The, the world tells us that we can, we can take both paths. Some of us here try to come on a Sunday morning and say, I'm walking with God, and on Monday morning I'm going to go the world's way. And what James told us is when we try to be those who are double-minded, when we try to walk on two roads at once, uh, the, the thing that really ends up happening for us is this. And he says, good luck, because you can't do that. We end up confused. We end up whirled around. Do you remember there how James in chapter 1, verse 6, he used the picture of the wind-whipped waves of the sea. And he said, we end up being tossed around like a cork that is bobbing on the waves and being blown all around God says for us, we can't do this. This isn't the way we're to live. Instead, what he calls us to is this. He says, in the midst of the storm-tossed seas of this world, in the midst of the struggles and the things that you are facing, God has provided a path. The scriptures tells us that thy word is a light unto my path. And what God says is he has given us a way home. He has given us a safe harbor. And we are those who are called to walk with him. We are those who are not to be out wandering the world and and all that it offers. But we are to come to Christ. A picture of the safety that God offers for us is found in John chapter 10 and verses 28 through 29. 
There Jesus Christ said, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. He says, and no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. He tells us, the picture is, is, is you think of the nail-scarred hand of Jesus Christ. And he says, when we come to faith in him, we are placed in his hand and he closes it around us. And he says, God, the father comes and he closes his hand around us. And he says, no one, no one can get you out of my hand. There is this picture of eternal security. When we come into the safe harbor, having received Jesus Christ as our savior, he says, our salvation is secure. We find that in Romans chapter 8, in verse 1, it begins by telling us, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as you read through Paul's words, as he finishes that chapter, he says in the last verses, in 38 through 39, for I am convinced, he doesn't say, I I think this is, he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Friends, that includes you and me. We are created. And he says, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, we have been placed in the hand of God, and God says, I paid too high a price for you. You can read John 5, 24, and there it says, when we come to faith in Christ, we have passed out of death and into life. It's a one-way door. Some of you will remember the old turn gates like at a swimming pool, and you would go through this way, but you couldn't go back the other way, and that is the picture of salvation. The verb there is in the perfect tense. It means it is a completed action. It is done. And it cannot be undone. And he says, when we have passed out of death into life, when we come to faith in Christ, our salvation is secure. God paid too high a price to let us go, even when we go down the wrong road. Now, in terms of going down a wrong road and the high price that was paid, James wants us to know when we go down the wrong road, there is too high of a price to pay for us. Because it says, if we stay with this image of the storm-tossed sea, it says we can become shipwrecked. And when a ship uh, sinks, all the cargo that has been collected and placed on board is lost. And as you go through this world, as you've been grabbing up all the stuff of the world, as you've been collecting it and thinking, this is what it's all about. Do you remember earlier in James how he warned us that when we hoard the things of the world, he says, those are going to be lost. Moth and rust and thieves we saw destroy the earthly treasures. But what we store up in heaven will never be lost. And as you go through this life, if it's all about hedone, this hedonism, the pleasures that you've been collecting in this world, James has warned us. He says, this stuff is lost. Not only will we lose the stuff of the world, but we will even lose our very lives. Last week, we saw in the previous part of James chapter 5, that as we sin, there are consequences that come with it. And we saw that some of those consequences are sickness, and in extreme cases, even death. This lifestyle of sin can lead to death, as we see in verse 20, where James says, He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, the Greek word for way here is hodos, and this is a word that was used to speak of a literal road. 
that we walk on, but it was also used figuratively to speak of a lifestyle direction. And as James is speaking here, he's talking about the way in which these believers have lost their way. And their lifestyle, the direction that they are living is one in rebellion to God. They've turned from God and they've been walking away from him. Sin is a picture of where we are at the cross of Christ where we, we have come to him but we turn our back on God and we walk away to the things of the world. And repentance, repentance as you'll recall means to stop. It means to have a literal change of mind that leads to a change of action. It means we realize I'm going in the wrong direction. And we stop and we turn around and we go back to God. That is repentance. For a non-believer who's never come to faith, it's where they come to faith the first time. They realize there is a way of life through the Lord of life, Jesus Christ, and they come to him. For the believer who walks away from God, we recognize I've gone from the light into darkness. And if I stop and I turn around and I go back to God, I can have fellowship again. Now, in terms of living our lives, we've seen that we cannot lose our salvation, but we can lose rewards. Several times in the book of James, we talked about the rewards that God has for us. You'll recall that we looked at the Bema judgment seat of Christ. The Bema seat is where the believer goes to be judged for how they've lived their lives. This is where we receive our eternal rewards, the responsibilities for the millennial kingdom, the rewards that we will have for all eternity in heaven. And as we think about the way that we are living our lives, you might recall the illustration of the rope I used. And I showed how we have about 100 years that represented just this much. But we had all of eternity that those, the way that we invested the 100 years of our life would impact all eternity. And what James is telling us here today is as we live our lives we can lose these things. 1 Corinthians three ten through 15, we saw this verse in one of the earlier sermons. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, Paul says, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones. These are the things that last. In contrast, the things of the world, wood, hay, straw. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet it's through fire. This again is a picture of our security that we have. When we come to faith in Christ, that is the foundation. And the Apostle Paul says that the way that we live our lives is being built upon that gift of new life that we've been given. And he says we cannot lose our salvation, but we can lose the things of this life, whether it's the stuff we've collected or the physical life that we have while we're here on earth. Some whose lives are spent on the wrong things like pursuing the world's pleasures will have nothing left for eternity except for their souls. And that's why he says, we're going to walk through the gates of heaven, some who have not lived for Christ, smelling like fire. That's all you've got left. 
And he tells us in this book, as we've seen all throughout, that we are, to, we are to invest in the eternal things. As he speaks of saving souls, these are eternal. Only people's souls and the word of God last for eternity. Everything else will be destroyed. And what he tells us here, when we save their souls, Jesus Christ did this for us when he died on the cross. So he's not speaking of us saving the person. What he's saying is we're saving the person from a wasted life. Because when we see them going down the wrong road, we care enough to step in and say, whoa, you're going in the wrong direction. You need to stop. You need to turn around. There needs to be this picture of repentance. The Greek word he uses to turn around here literally means to turn around, to turn back, or to convert. Now, as we've seen, he's not speaking of those who need to be converted in the sense of coming to faith in Christ for the first time. This Greek word is used that way in the scriptures. In Acts 14, 15, we find this same word, and it says, We preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So there is that picture of conversion where some come to faith for the first time. But this word is also used of those of us who are Christians those who have placed our faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but we may turn around and walk away. An example of this is found in Luke chapter 22. In verse 32 of Luke 22, after Peter, you'll recall during the the arrest and the things that happened before that at the Last Supper, Jesus said, Peter, you will deny me three times. And here in Luke 22, we find what happens as Jesus is on trial. And Peter denied him three times. Now, leading up to that event, this is what Jesus said to him. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There's our word. When once you have turned again, he says, Peter, I know what's going to happen. You're going to fail. You're going to turn away from me. You're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times. And he says, Peter, when that happens, you don't lose your salvation. What you lose is your ability to be used by me. And he says, so I'm praying for you, Peter, that when that happens, and it will, that you will turn around again. And that will happen too, Peter. And then, he says, you can be used again greatly by God. And this is the picture that James is is giving to us as he speaks of this event. He's saying that there are those of us who will be going away from God. We will be headed in the wrong direction. And he says, we need to turn around. And he says, when a person is lost, sometimes they don't realize it. They need somebody else to step in and help turn them around. And that's what he calls on us as Christians to do. In a recent message, I I shared with you about my son, Zachary, swimming at the University of Texas Aquatic Center. And as, as I was there at the University of Texas watching my son in this swim meet, I had a memory of the first swim meet that Zachary had ever swam in. And, and I wish I had a video for you because it could have, I, I wish I had the video because I could have won $100,000 in America's family videos with it because it was so funny to watch. But he was five years old and he was in uh, a neighborhood meet in our neighborhood pool. 
And he was doing a 25-meter backstroke. Here he is, a little itty-bitty boy, five years old, getting in the pool. And at that point, he could barely keep his head above water. You know, he's just kind of swimming, and he's ping-ponging off the lane lines. If you've ever uh, watched kids, uh, it's probably how I swim as well. But if, if you're in there, he's, he's kind of going back and forth, you know. So the 25 meters down the pool probably turns into, you know, 50 by the time they, they reach the end. But Zachary's in the water and he's swimming backwards. And there's another little boy in the lane next to him who's struggling as well. And about halfway down the pool, this other boy, as he's ping-ponging, I don't know how it happened, he actually goes under the lane line. And he's now in Zachary's lane with him. And Zachary, as he's ping-ponging and this boy's coming in, well, he, he kind of turns the wrong way. And, and one of the things that coaches drill into the kids is, do not stop swimming. Don't grab the lane line. Don't stand up because you'll DQ. You'll disqualify. So no matter what happens, just keep swimming. You know, it's like finding Nemo. Just keep swimming, right? <laughs> and so, so here he is swimming, swimming. Well, he's turned around, and now it really is turning into a 50-meter backstroke because he's, he's headed to the, to the starting line instead of the finish line. And, and I'm his dad watching this. And, you know, my son is barely keeping his head above water. You know, he's exhausted. And I'm, and I'm standing there on the sideline, Zachary, turn around, turn around. You know, and his ears are underwater. He's just swimming, you know. And, and my wife comes running up, Zach, she's waving her, turn around. And all the other parents, everybody's screaming. The whole pool starts screaming. You know, here he is. He's going all the way back to the starting line. And I'm running along, turn around, I'm waving. And it's not doing any good. Now, I would have jumped into the water, but then I thought I would have disqualified him. As he gets to the starting line, his coach jumps into the water. And he gently grabs him by the head. You see Zachary open his eyes for the first time. And he says, keep swimming, keep swimming. And he turns him. And Zachary keeps swimming. And he does a 75-yard backstroke (laughs) because now he has to go the whole length of the pool. And he finally gets to the end. And when he touches, this little five-year-old boy collapses. And I run over there and I pick him up. And I'm so proud of you, son. You did great. He said, did I win? (laughs) (laughs) You won, son. You won. You know? Because everybody's cheering, you know? (laughs) This is what James tells us. He says, when you see somebody going the wrong way, you need to turn them around. Now, many of us as Christians are like I was as a daddy. We know they're going the wrong way. We know they're struggling. We want to do, and what do we do? We stand on the sideline and we go, turn around. You're going the wrong way. You're going to hell. Does it do much good? We wave our arms. Hey, 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 this way, this way. And you know what James says we have to do? We have to jump in the water. We have to get in the muck and the mire with them. We have to sometimes get in the mess in order to effectively turn somebody around. Just yelling at them isn't going to do any good. In fact, sometimes it makes it worse, right? Because all they're hearing is condemnation. And what he says is, 
We need to come alongside him. Friends, isn't that what God did for us? We sing about Jesus condescending, and we go, what does that word mean? What it means is he left his throne in heaven to take on flesh and blood, to come to the earth, to walk in the muck and the mire and the mess of this world, to come alongside us. Because he says, as if I came in all my glory as this big God, all you would hear is this booming, you're going to hell. And so he became like one of us. He shrunk down and he took on flesh and blood so that he could come alongside us, not just to tell us the way, but to be the way, to be the one who would pay that penalty of death for us, who would become the actual sacrifice for us. And he calls on us today as Christians who have found that forgiveness to be those who are willing to jump into the water, to come alongside somebody who's lost and to say, let me help you. Let me put my hands into the mess with you and and, and begin to turn you. Now, as we do that, God warns us that we need to be careful. We've talked a lot about Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, as we've gone through James. There it says, brethren, even if anyone among you is, it says, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. You see, what happens is if you've ever taken a water safety course where you've been trained to be a lifeguard, what they warn you about is if you're ever jumping in to try to save somebody who's drowning, what do they say can happen? They say you can become a victim yourself because as you come alongside somebody in the, in the midst of the, the hysteria and, and, the, and they're struggling and they're drowning, they're going to try to climb up on you and they'll take you under. He says you have to be careful when you go in to save somebody that you yourself don't get pulled under. The picture is if somebody's fallen over a cliff and we throw them a rope, a lifeline, and we want to pull them up, he says it's easier for you to be pulled in than it is to pull somebody up. And so that's why it's wise many times when we come to help another that we have a team around us, those who can, you know, tie on a safety rope and help and and help with the pulling. We don't necessarily jump in alone. But we're to love them enough to realize that this person is lost. And, And James makes clear that he wants us to get involved. Now, as we get involved, what what we saw is sometimes people will say, you know, it's none of your business. You know, you, the Bible says you're not supposed to judge. You ever heard that? If you were here a few weeks ago, as we looked at James chapter 4 and verses 4 through 11, we talked about this in the sermon I called The Peril of Playing God. And in James four eleven through 17, we debunked that the Bible does not say do not judge. What the Bible tells us, you'll recall, is not to be pharisaical, holier-than-thou type of people who come and say, let me deal with your sin while I ignore my own. God tells us we are to judge. But by the standard of measure, as we saw that we judge others, it will be measured to us. What God says is, take, take the log out of your own eye before you go after the speck in your brother's eyes. I'm not going to go back and re-preach the whole sermon. So if you missed it or you need a review, go back and listen to this. Because we saw that God does want us involved in the lives of others when they're in sin. 
And James makes that clear here. He says we are to be involved. We are to step in and to help turn somebody around. Now, what happens is oftentimes we say, well, Roger, you know, I'm, I'm afraid to get involved in, in the life of another person because, you know, we have all kinds of reasons. I don't want to hurt their feelings. Do you really want to stand by and watch them hurt themselves and others? Now, you may say, well, you know, Roger, I'm, I'm going to lose my friendship with them. Are you more worried about losing your friendship or your friend being hurt, possibly even losing their own life by some of the destructive things they're doing? And, you know, if you're truly a friend, you will get involved. Proverbs 27, 6 tells us, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds. Yes, the truth hurts sometimes. It hurts to come in and, and tell somebody, you know... There's something going on in your life, and, and it's hard for me to say this to you because I know it's going to make you upset, but I care about you too much to let you keep doing it. Would you like to go to a doctor who, as they look at you, they say, um, you know, there's a disease here. And, uh, you know, I know if I go back into the room and tell the person, well, you've got this disease that could be fatal, it's going to make them upset. And I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want them to go home upset. So I'm just going to go in and tell them everything's great. Oh, that, that, that thing on your skin. Let me just put a Band-Aid on it. We're just going to cover that up. You don't even look at it. Don't worry about it. Is that the kind of doctor you want? Or do you want a doctor who says, listen, I've, I've got to have a hard conversation with you. There's a disease going on in your body. There's a cancer here. And we're going to have to go in. We're going to have to cut it out. And the surgery is going to be hard. It's going to be painful. Uh, there's going to be chemo that comes with it. That's going to make you sick. But with God's grace, as we go through this process, there's the hope of healing that comes because we're going to intervene. We're going to go in and do something about it. That's what James tells us as, as brothers and sisters, that we love another enough to step in and say, look, this is going to be hard. It's hard for me to have this conversation with you. It's going to hurt you to hear this, but I love you enough to get in the muck and the mire with you, and I'm going to, I'm going to walk with you, and we're going to turn this around. When a life is at stake, we are called to respond to the crisis. You know, a fireman does this as he hurls himself into, the burn, into a burning building to save somebody. A parent will do this. A mother will see a child darting into traffic and they will run into traffic themselves in order to snatch that kid up. It's why a, a complete stranger seeing a swimmer floundering in the water is willing to jump in and risk their own life. Why? Why do people do these heroic things? It's because of the sure knowledge they have that if they do not act, there will be a catastrophic consequence that will come. And as Christians, we are called to have that same perspective, to realize that if we do not step into the situation, that person who is going the wrong way, we know the road is out, we know there is no bridge, and they are about to go over a cliff. And are we going to love them enough to step in and intervene in the situation? That's what James calls on us to do. When we have a clear understanding of the condition of those who are lost, whether it's a wayward Christian or worse, one who has never come to faith, it should, drive the, it should drive the church out of the building and into the streets to save that individual or those people from certain loss. Now, when I say it should drive the church out of the building, I mean that. Friends, the church isn't this building. You are the church. 
The church isn't a place you go. It's not a program that you come to listen to the music and a sermon and then go home. You are the church. The church is made up of individuals who know Jesus Christ as their Savior and as a collective body. We are called the church. And James wants us to be the church. Earlier in James 1.22, we were told not to be those who merely hear the word of God, but to be doers of the word. All throughout the book of James, he has given us practical ways to be the hands and feet of Christ. To be those who, who know the truth, to let the truth go from our head to our heart through our hands. As we show through our life and labors practical ways of helping people. And this is one of those. We are to demonstrate God's love enough by getting into the muck and mire with the person, if necessary. It's what God did for us. It says in Romans 5 eight, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He looked down from heaven to earth. He saw the mess we were in, and he said, I am going to come down there. I'm going to get into the mess with them in order to be the way home. In the closing words of James, he says that when we step in to turn a sinner from the error of his way, we will cover a multitude of sins. As, as he mentions a multitude of sins, we see the magnitude of God's grace. Because the Bible tells us that just one, just one sin will separate us from God. And he says we've all got a lot of sin. And because we're sinners, we have a problem. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. But, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what he says is, Jesus Christ came to cover our sins. When he uses this word cover, it, it, it doesn't mean to, to cover in the sense of where you sweep the dirt under the rug and you hide it. The, the word for covering here speaks of forgiveness, where the offense is removed and it is remembered in God's sight no more. In 1 Peter 4, 8, we find the same word there. It says, love covers a multitude of sins. And what James says to us today is we need to love another person enough to have the hard conversations. We need to love the other person enough to leave the comfort of our seat and not just be those who sit back or stand on the edge and say, turn around. He says, get in the water. Do as Christ did. When Jesus died for us, he paid the penalty in full for our sins. He closed the account. It's what we're about to remember as we come to the communion table. And as we come to the communion table today, it reminds us of how God paid the penalty in full for our sins, how he closed the account. And what Psalm 32.1 tells us is, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Our sins were covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. As I said, it doesn't speak of hiding the sin. It speaks of doing away with the penalty that is owed for the sin. And as Jesus Christ covered our sins, what his blood did was it came and it closed the account. For all who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, what the Bible says is the penalty has been paid in full. God has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. And today as we come to the table and we hold a piece of bread, it represents the body of Christ. It represents how God was willing to get in the water with us, to step in, to do what was needed, to turn us around.
to give us the way home by paying that penalty of death that we owed. We're going to hold a cup representing his blood that shows how our sin was covered. It was washed away, we sing about, through the blood of Christ. Our sins have been washed away. We've been made white as snow. He paid the penalty in full for us. If you're here today and you've never received Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to do so today. To take the bread, to take the cup, to say to Jesus, Today, God, I recognize who you are, the one who died for me, and I accept your death in my place. Thank you, God for covering my sin. Thank you for removing the transgression, for paying the penalty in full. For the rest of us here who have received God in the past through his son, having accepted Jesus as our savior, God calls on us today to come with clean hands and hearts to confess our sins, to be those who say to him, God, I've made some mistakes, but today I know you forgive me. Today I want you to to know that I've messed up and, and I'm trying to walk with you. Forgive me, God, for my sins. And as we talked about last time, 1 John 1, 9 says, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you don't have to be a member of Wayside. You don't have to be a regular attender. You just have to be a part of the family of God by having received Jesus. And if you are, we invite you to come to this table with us. I want you to take and hold the bread and the cup to think about what Jesus did for you to prepare your head and your heart through confession so that you will be ready to receive the Lord's table at the end of this song. Men, will you serve us, please?
during this Christmas season, we celebrate Jesus coming. We think about the little baby in a manger. But Christmas isn't about the baby at Bethlehem. It's ultimately about the Christ of Calvary. Because God had to take on flesh and blood. We sing about Emmanuel, God with us. God, in order to come and be with us, had to become a man. Had to become one who would have a body and blood to offer. The book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so the story of Christmas is the story we remember right now. The communion table, because that is why the baby of Bethlehem came. He took on flesh in order to take my place and your place by going to the cross to pay that penalty of death. So the bread you hold, it represents, yes, the baby of Bethlehem, but also the Christ of Calvary, the one who died so that we could have the gift of eternal life, eat it in remembrance of him. We've talked today about our sins being covered. Again, it's not about hiding it under a rug. It's not about just removing it from sight. It's about removing the penalty. It's about closing the account, about paying the wrath as well as the legal uh, penalty that was owed. We read in 1 John about Jesus being the propitiation, a big word that means the one who satisfied not just the legal requirement for sin, but also the wrath As Jesus died for us, it didn't just remove the penalty where we squeaked in and barely got into heaven, but it says we were made a part of the family, sons and daughters of God, that we would be welcomed home one day in heaven as full members of the family, one where our heavenly father would be excited to see my son, my daughter has come home. James today has talked to us about helping to turn those who have been running the wrong way around. This represents what God did for us, dying to pay that penalty of death so that we could come home. As we leave here today, I want us to remember the great grace we've received and to show that grace to others as we look for those who maybe are headed the wrong way and that we're willing to do as God did, to step into the muck and the mire, to come alongside the person in the midst of the mess, to love them enough to turn them around. God loved us enough to give his son to die for us. His blood washed away our sins. That's what we remember and celebrate today. Drink it in remembrance of him. We join me, please, as we close in prayer. Lord God, thank you for your great love for us. Love that was demonstrated, Jesus, in that you died while we were still sinners in order to save us, in order to rebuild that bridge that was out. Father, as those who have found the way home, those who have walked over the bridge of faith, may we be those who are out looking for others that are headed down that broad road of destruction, that are headed down a dead-end path that leads only to separation from you for all eternity. May we be willing, Father, to be your hands and feet, May we be willing, Father, to be those, as James has written about all through these chapters, to be those who are not merely hearers of the word, but doers. So send us out into the world now. Send us out as your missionaries, as your ambassadors, 
as your representatives into our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods, even alongside the strangers that we may see on the street, and help us to be those who are messengers of good news, the good news that indeed Emmanuel has come. God is with us for one purpose, in order to provide the way home. And so may we be those who call others home to show them how to find you, Jesus. May that be seen through our life and labors, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.